0: Today in the garage, we have Sharif Foda and Laura Metcalf. Sharif Foda runs a small generalist criminal defense practice that offers services across southern Ontario and beyond. He and his associate are in chambers with the Adaria Law Group, where they focus mainly on trial work, although they can conduct select appeals and quasi criminal litigation from time to time. Sharif practices in English and in French, speaks Arabic and is a member of the Ontario, Quebec, and New York State Bars. Despite his range, in criminal cases, Sharif only appears for the defense. Laura Metcalf has a mixed trial and appeal practice at Adario Law Group. She has appeared as counsel before all levels of court in Ontario and British Columbia. Prior to joining the Adario Law Group, Laura spent five years working with Alan D. Gold Professional Corporation. Laura co-authors A Practical Guide to the Charter Section 10B, and a practical guide to the Charter, Section 11B, together with Alan D. Gold and Michael Lacey. She also contributes articles to For the Defense magazine. In her spare time, she spends her time bowling and playing softball. Whether you're riding your FJR 1300, shredding your Gretsch, or drafting leave lead applications, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it. Sharif, Laura, thank you for being in the garage today.
1: Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Before uh, Sharif got here, because he was a little late, uh, Laura and I were discussing the early days of the Law Garage. And um, Laura, you you heard about this uh, seminar presentations that the Law Garage was hosting back in the day. How did you hear about those?
1: Um, so when I was in law school, I knew that there was, and I was in law school in Ottawa, I heard that there was this free CPD In Toronto where a bunch of lawyers would hang out in a garage and talk about criminal law sounded like there might be a beer or two during these seminars and it just sounded uh, like a great idea and I was impressed that there were so many senior lawyers that were donating their time to ensure access to CPDs so I just really liked the idea and looked forward to getting to Toronto and getting involved in that
0: that's great Sharif how about you did you have any experience with the law garage prior to today
2: Sorry, what? what's the law garage? <laughs> um, no, I mean, um, beyond uh, it being a um, uh, podcast uh, and a CPD program that's available for lawyers, I, um, I didn't know much about it, frankly. I was introduced to it or to the idea of, I think, through uh, Lisa Jorgensen, if you guys know her. She used to work of with Paul Cooper, now Justice Paul Cooper, and I think she... Uh, she put in a lot of hours um, in the law garage, so uh, that's kind of how I uh, got to know it. But she's moved on to bigger and better things or greener pastures for now.
0: Well, Lisa was uh, among uh, one of the early members to help uh, start the law garage, so yeah, we, we're very familiar with her. Um, let, me, let me ask you both. First, I'll start with Laura. How did you start in your journey into criminal law?
1: So I decided very early on that I was interested in the criminal justice system. Um, I decided that in order to pursue that, I would take an undergrad in criminology. Um, The idea would be that I could maybe get into law school, but I also was aware that it's difficult and not everybody gets in. So I wanted to take a program whereby if I didn't get into law school, I could enter the justice system somewhere else, like a probation officer police officer, uh, correctional officer, whatever that would be. It was the criminal justice system that I always had an interest in as opposed to becoming a lawyer. Um, so I was lucky. I got into law school, and things worked out. And Sharif? Um,
2: I, um, I was interested in criminal law in law school, but even before that, even when I was in high school, I volunteered um, like once a week at a criminal lawyer's uh, office. And I ended up actually articling in uh, at a big law firm. So I was kind of distracted uh, by the glitter uh, of, you know, paying off your, your student loans, etc. Um, but I very quickly um, decided to come back to criminal law after um, articling and during my clerkship. Um, and I think we are all interested in criminal law probably for the same reasons. We're always immediately well, anyone is immediately drawn to the stories of criminal law because it's the stories. So, um, I as soon as I finished clerking, I went into criminal law, and I haven't looked back since.
0: I don't think. I mean, I think we'll all agree that uh, it's the most interesting area for sure. I mean, we're biased, but
1: but we're truthful. That's true. <laughs> it, it
0: has to be because we're 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 always faced with addressing these very difficult and human situations on a daily basis so uh, to me it's obviously the most interesting area is there anything about this practice area that has excited you in your both of you are among the more junior of the guests we have for season three so you're both within your first 10 years of practice so is there anything that that really excites you as a lawyer in that first 10 years of practice
2: Sharif something that excites me um I mean, I uh, I like the stories. I like storytelling. And very early on, and even to today, I would have a case, and many of these cases would resolve or not go to trial for whatever reason. Um, and what excited me was the idea of how I could tell the story, usually in a cross-examination, because cross-examination is just the procedural tool through which we try to tell a story. So what would excite me was just thinking of how I'm going to tell the story with my first question in cross and then what my last question in cross is going to be. I'm always thinking, how do I start and how do I end? And what is the story that I'm telling and how do I tell the story in those questions? That has always excited me, even until now when I have a case. I'm like, okay, how is the cross going to start?
0: I, and that's an, an interesting uh, answer to the question because I, I spend a lot of time meticulously mapping and pouring over my cross-examination because I don't feel... I'm I'm a slave to the precision of language in my questioning because I don't have the confidence uh, that I'm as articulate as I want to be. So if I write out the precise words I want to use, I know the transcript will reflect what I want to say better than if I just wing it. I wing the questioning, but the wording is how I want it. So I try to map a story in my mind but it keeps me up sometimes late at night the night before because I just want to see how it's going to play out and when you're in court and you're actually executing it I feel like I'm getting excited because I know what's coming up Mm -hmm. and the witness doesn't know and nobody else knows but you know what's coming up because you've mapped out this cross-examination in your mind and you're hoping that the jury or the judge is understanding the story that you're trying to convey to them so that is an exciting part of uh of the job what about you laura
1: um i think it's one of two things one would be i really do enjoy watching other co-counsel i get very excited when you have excellent senior counsel that are about to do a cross-examination of a witness where you're involved as well you're either cross-examining the witness second but you're watching this really excellent lawyer um, perform really an art of advocacy Um, and then I think the second would be when you solve a really difficult problem and by that I mean something that you've been mulling over for months you're trying to solve the case and sometimes it's in the middle of a dream where you go (laughs) aha I've got it And you wake up and you write your notes down. Um, So its I kind of think of it like a Rubik's cube. When you actually finally click the last piece and solve it, that is a very exciting part of being a defense lawyer.
0: I don't think too many people look at us and say we're problem solvers. But I think from the defense side looking outwards, I think that's what we feel we do most of the time. Am I right about that, Sharif?
2: Yeah, I think we're just trying to put out fires. (laughs) We're just trying to put out fires and... It's damage control. Whenever we have a client coming to us, I always say, like, look, we are not going to be able to make you whole. We are just trying to minimize the damage to your life. Because at this point, whether they've been arrested already or an arrest is impending, um, there's already damage done, right?
0: Yeah, it's it's either they are innocent and going to be wrongfully charged so that's a problem or they're guilty of something and we're trying to minimize the damage that that the state is trying to impose upon them so you're right it's all damage control
1: yeah i find one of the most rewarding but underrated parts of being a defense lawyer are those cases where it's an assault and your client comes to you and you know through multiple meetings and addressing the root causes the issues you are realizing okay You have an alcohol program uh, and an alcohol problem. And so I'm going to find the appropriate program for you to address those issues. And you have an anger management problem. And I'm going to get you into those programs because at the end of the day, if we present all of this to the Crown Attorney, ultimately, it can often lead to withdrawal, which puts them in the position that they want to be. But I find it really rewarding at the end of uh, a year-long program with a therapist when you see the letter that they write about your client and how far they have come, and in that aspect, I do think we solve problems because we prevent a potential future crime. And I really fix their e- lives.
2: Yeah, for me, it's it's really rewarding when it's a youth client and that's happened to a youth. So where and like I, I don't I don't even like what are they called youth dispositions? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. I, like I don't like I don't I don't. I don't like any findings of guilt or youth dispositions or for any of my clients, even if there's a case against them. Um, so for my youth clients who very often the crown are more reasonable in terms of what they want on a sentence or what, what their position is. If I get them out totally unscathed and then they come back to me years later and say, Hey, you know what? Thank you so much for um, your help. And I turned my life around and it's not the other, that is the absolute most rewarding um Part of the job. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's exciting to win cases for drug dealers and whatever, just because it's like, aha, beat you to, to the state. <laughs> but, but, but the, but the, the, the truly the best is when you get someone who's kind of on the verge of like, you know, going down the uh, a path that we know where it leads to, either jail or death, and then they just turn it around. That for me is super, super rewarding.
0: But on the the winning in court. I- it does feel good. And it does feel good because as you said, we're we're mitigating damage. Everybody's being punished from the moment they face the charge. So when you get the acquittal or you minimize or you get a lesser included, it feels good because you're saying, you know, justice has been served in this case. This person should not have been convicted. Not we want to accept as much responsibility as we can for that result. But at the end of the day, it's the state didn't prove it. Enough for this person to be punished any more than he already has. So that's to me, that is also rewarding. Although I do, I do appreciate it when, you know, you have those clients come back to you down the road and just send you a random. I just got a random email from a uh, a youth client who said, you know, I just want to thank you for everything you've done for me. And I, I don't really represent very many youth clients, but you just get this random thing three, four years later, they're adults and they realize what they were involved in and what they're no longer involved in. So yeah, those are very rewarding aspects of the job. Um, Laura, do you have any early memories of going to court or anything that uh, you can draw upon that you think uh, you want to share with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I was, um, as I mentioned, I was in Ottawa for law school and undergrad. So I was provided a number of opportunities uh, to shadow and work for criminal defense lawyers in Ottawa. And I remember in my second year, I got this opportunity to miss a lot of school and attend a trial in Laval where Michael Lacey was arguing for one of the co-counsel. And I just remember being starstruck. His advocacy was excellent. But it was also these lunch hour uh, meetings with all the co-counsel where... Uh, my boss at the time was quite generous and he would invite me and I would hear Michael over co- casual conversation list off 10 different court of appeal cases talking about the dissent in a court of appeal decision from 1992 that has nothing to do with the actual case we're litigating that day and I just remember thinking how do you become like him that's incredible and it was uh, it was a very important experience for me because it's what motivated me to uh, apply for articles in Toronto and try to go see what the big city has in store.
0: Yeah, I think, think, um, you know, among the the bar, we all appreciate and know what Michael Lacey is capable of. Um, And, you know, his popularity as president of the CLA and what he did for our organization at that time was um, impeccable. But it's not until you actually see him in court We argued an appeal together. I mean, I say that loosely. Michael Lacey (laughs) argued an appeal. I was on, I'm on the, I'm on the case. But on his ground of appeal, just the, I remember watching his appeal and thinking, this is what I expected from Michael Lacey. And then I remember Justice Doherty asked Michael to reply I have a question for Mr. Lacey, if you wouldn't mind. And it was in that reply that there was no doubt in my mind that we were going to win this appeal. Just because all of a sudden it was, okay, appeal's over. Justice Doherty had an issue that he couldn't get his mind around or appeared that he needed help with, and Michael just stood up, articulated it, and next thing you know, sent back on a second-degree murder case. And it was so obvious to me, and I said, that's the difference between... You know, g- really good advocacy and great advocacy. It's when the court trusts you enough that they're going to ask you specifically to address a particular issue that they're wrestling with. Sharif, any early memories or things that you draw upon as motivation, or something that you remember that fondly about those early days of practice?
2: Um, I mean, my my. My early days of practice. So I started my um, my career with Henan Hutchison for you know a, a hot minute, a little bit less than a year before I went to work for uh, Craig Bottomley. And it's really only uh, now, um, like several years later, that I look back and I'm like, oh, okay, that was actually incredible that I got to learn that and see that. Um, but they have very different practice. They have di- very different styles uh, in terms of how they run the practice and what associates do. So I didn't get to do uh, that much on-my-feet advocacy uh, at Henn and Hutchison early on compared to, like, working with Craig. Literally my first day with Craig, I didn't go to the office. He called me in the morning. He said, you have a bail hearing. Go to Scarborough. And I said, what do I do? He said, get him bail. <laughs> 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 um but uh, yeah, I, I, I have memories of, uh, uh, of actually what really impressed me was how Marie and Scott handled clients and how they would inspire confidence in the client meetings. And, and I didn't put this on the questionnaire, but I remember one client meeting we had. Marie's sitting next to me and we're doing an intake and this client has all these documents and relevant things for their matter And the client, who was a professional and very smart, was like handing them and explaining. And Marie like would spend like a half second looking at the document, immediately process its value, and like hand it over to me, digest it, and be like, "Okay, next. Like this is what we're gonna do." And she was like a magician, just like all (laughs) of these documents, just taking them and then, and all while kind of showing the client how. Uh, brilliant she is just with her demeanor and how she's handling and processing all the information that's coming in so very early on uh in my career the most impressive stuff that i saw was i think um, how marie and scott practiced and not just in court but at the at the firm at the office they, they are truly really uh, incredible advocates
1: yeah, that's interesting because I think one of the most valuable parts of my experience working for Alan, um, you know, obviously watching him in court is an incredible experience, but it was actually learning how to do a file properly from the very beginning to the end. And it, it was the very first client meeting where each meeting is no less than two hours and he's finding out every possible fact and um, how to review the disclosure and what to look for that The Crown and the police have not done. And those basic steps um, are something that has carried with me, you know, they become instinctual. And that is something that I'm very grateful for. And it's not, uh, you just don't see it in the courtroom, right? It's the behind the work preparation.
2: Start with originating process. Order a copy of the information or indictment, right? Get the criminal (laughs)
1: code. (laughs) Go look at the charges. Don't do anything else until you've read the criminal code provisions. Yeah, And you know what your client's facing.
0: <laughs> you, you both have this unique experience of working for these, like Alan Gold, Frank Adario, Marie Hennon, Scott Hutchison. I'll put Craig in there, but I'll stop in a second. <laughs> because of the differences, because of what you just said, is that, you know, there's two, it's almost like there's two avenues here, or there's three avenues in criminal law. It's either you work in, one of these firms where you're a junior for the, for, for the, the top for people. God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> then there's the other where you work at a firm that, you know, it's a high volume and they kind of throw you in, go do a bail here and go do a trial. Like I, I, I got handed a file on my first day after I got called to the bar and the trial was three days later. That's my experience at the young age. And then there's the other people. I think some people are just in a situation where they're just going out on their own and learning on their own right out of the gate. Um, I think there's value to all these experiences, but what I've noticed, we all look back maybe at our experiences and think, well, ours is the better way to go. This was better. This was better. But I really think that there's utility in all three. Um, You can, if you really want to be exceptional at this job, you can see what did I learn at Marie's office? What did I learn at Alan's office? How do I apply those skills going forward? And, people who worked at the larger firms will say the same thing. What did I learn at these firms? And then how do I apply those skills going forward? But eventually when you get to a certain point in your career, somebody like for instance, Craig is a perfect example. His firm go run a bail hearing first day on the job. That's not something that he might've had to do when he was working for Shrek. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so we, you learn how to do it on the fly and then you start imparting that. Um, How did you find that transition? Sharif?
2: That's very interesting. I um, so it was a bit intentional for me, but just because I knew relatively early on, like very early on, that I wanted to go out on my own, and I just knew that I would not be able to have a strong book of business if I um, worked for um, Hannon Hutchinson because it wasn't Hannon Hutchinson photo. Like no one knew <laughs> who Jerry right. Photo was. No one was coming there to hire me. Um, And, um, whereas with Craig, it was like, you know, Craig had a lot of legal aid clients who like their lawyer was Sheree Foda. So the transition for me, uh, was scary, daunting, but I was excited because I was like, this is my opportunity to build a book of business. This is my opportunity to be in the trenches and just get the reps in. And I totally agree with what you say about there being utility in in the different, uh, training models. And in retrospect, it might've been better for me to get more good training early on, but you know, that's life. We can always just hindsight is 2020. 20. Um, but I do try to take a deliberate approach about, uh, at least with my associate, trying to teach quality, but also get him ready for the, oh, Lot you, you know we got a call at 10 p.m. Clients charged possession of a gun and drugs. You're gonna have a bail hearing tomorrow morning, right? And um, I think being versatile is very, very, very valuable in this business, uh, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build my versatility and trying to instill that in uh, my associate. I um, I found the transition challenging at first, but now I think I'm I'm better for it because I can. I can see the value in in, uh, in both approaches, although I've never been as good uh, at charging uh, a lot of money as some of the very exceptional senior counsel, actually both, and Craig. I'm not as good at getting money as Craig is either because he's, <laughs> he's pretty good at getting paid too. Laura?
1: Yeah, my experience um, was actually quite backwards. Um, obviously, I worked for Alan, and I'm now working for Frank, and that's an incredibly privileged position to be in, but... When I was in undergrad, I did a field placement with an Ottawa lawyer, Bruce Angle, and I was working at Wendy's at the time. I was very fortunate. He hired me back as a legal assistant. And what I would do is get my work done in the first three hours and spend the rest of the time taking cases. And his firm had associates that had a heavy legal aid practice. He did a lot of impaired. Um, so by the time I got to law school, he had hired me every summer and that was where I got that heavy volume experience where I would come in and there'd be 30 files that I have to review and 60 memos on different issues and I learned to do things much quicker than I... (laughs) I, I'm someone that likes a lot of time um, but it was an incredibly rewarding experience because I, I had to learn things on my own I learned a lot also from the lawyers there, but it was a heavier volume practice. So I remember having to write a charter on an impaired issue where I didn't know the difference between an ASD and a breathalyzer, which is not ideal. And I took Alan Gold's book at the time and read it over a weekend front and back to figure out how to do this. And that's where I learned a lot of um, the skills, how to deal with things quickly. And I do agree with you, Marco. I think it's important to have both of those experiences. Um, Adam Weisberg is in chambers with Alan. So I got to work on cases with him and know him really well. And he had that dual experience. And I know he's incredibly grateful for it. He worked for Alan, but he also worked at Pinkowski's, where he's thrown in with a ton of trials, probably waking up, getting thrown a trial the morning of. Um, And I know that, you know, for him, he wouldn't separate that. He he's equally grateful for both experiences. So in a perfect world, we get all of it.
0: (laughs) And on that, and on that third branch, which is the person who goes out on their own early. I mean, I've known people who've done quite well having to do that. I think the difference is oftentimes their focus is making money. I mean, you have to, if you're going on your own right out of the gate, you have to build a practice and the I think what your your focus goes there, so you might be better off at building this business. Um, and what I've noticed is that it takes maybe a little longer to then put in the attention and the focus on the work product in terms of the more serious matters or that because you're you have to pay the bills. But what they might get that your experience or my experience might not brought was that business element early on in our career because we've had to kind of develop that as we build our practices going forward so as you go through the, your practice i'm wondering if i mean laura and i we met on this Garafoli foley application that we've done uh, over the last
1: that life, my whole career. <laughs> life. <laughs>
0: um, and the reason why i transitioned to this just off the top of my head is because for me, that group of counsel that was on that case had a, a all people from different experiences. And you brought to the table your experience through working with Alan Gold and uh, Frank Adario. Other lawyers on that case brought their experiences and we brought our experience and we put together um, what we thought was a very uh, good fight for our clients in, in this big project case. Oftentimes we drew on cases... That Sharif litigated, sometimes with Craig Bottomley, um, <laughs> Garofoli cases as well. And as you know, younger lawyers, wiretap cases are pretty complicated. Tell me about how you both start to tackle a wiretap case when it comes on your desk. Sharif?
2: Oh, my God. I'm just shaking my head because
1: Yeah, like... I wanted to note that for the viewers, that he's just oh. head, hand in face, shaking his head. <laughs> well, let's start from the
0: proposition that they're very, very difficult to, to be successful on.
2: They're difficult,
1: and they are exhausting,
2: and they're getting more and more and more difficult because they're getting more um, expansive. The wiretap applications are getting longer. Um the state is becoming more secretive about the technology it's using. Um, and the new, I don't know if it's a new approach. Maybe it's always been like this. Maybe I just had the patience for it before. But then what I feel like is the new approach is just, okay, here is, um, here are five terabytes of data. Uh, in vomit format. I don't know if you're aware of that uh, file <laughs> format, but it's um, and fi- and 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 figure it out. So, how do you approach it? Um, to start, uh, you should you know know what evidence is being tendered against your client, if it derives from the wires or not. If it does, um, is it actually were they a named person or not? Um, and um, then start reading the ITOs. And look for certain issues. Start issue spotting. Um, and also, there's a bit of an instinctual element. If something feels like it's a creepy form of state surveillance, um, keep digging. Um, that's big picture uh, how to do it. But w- I mean, we could talk about. I'm sure we could talk about wiretaps forever, but that's kind of big picture my my approach.
0: Right, like right out of the gates, I I just I like to have a first first read of the ITO and then what my, usually my next step is to we chart every paragraph, what the point of that paragraph is and what the source documentation of those paragraphs are. I mean, that is a lot of work that no one's really paying for usually in some of the cases we do. Laura?
1: Yeah. So I think I would have two comments. The first is that I really, I start with the ITO because these cases the ito is usually quite lengthy and it presents you a a police chronology of event but it at least presents you with the case as it stands and gives you a good background um i then like to do a lengthy client interview so i can understand what i don't know from the client's perspective um and then i think the most important thing for these cases because i find them especially at the beginning, they still are, but they're incredibly overwhelming with the amount of disclosure and they can keep you up at night. And so the first step is looking at the state of organization. And by that, I mean there is a lot of case law that would support the proposition that the crown has an onus to provide you organized disclosure. And we shouldn't just necessarily accept CD after CD or, disclosure with four folders um i did a case early on in bc where the disclosure was organized to such a level that it made everything easier that council brief was hyperlinked um it was voluminous um voluminous but organized and in that scenario you can assess the case and you can start to understand the issues a lot faster. And so I think it's important for defense counsel to not just accept the state of disclosure and not just from an 11B perspective. It's also for defending your client's perspective. There are cases where I would go back in time if I could and have from the outset said to the crown, this is not appropriate and set it out in writing what you expect. And if they don't agree to provide you that state of disclosure and you go over Jordan, you're going to have a very good argument to say, not only did the Crown not provide me a plan, I gave them the plan and they said no. So, so got the, a little the, heated there because the state of organization really <laughs> frustrates me with some of these cases.
0: Well, the, I think the also the, a good point is that I think with where Foley applications, especially wiretap applications, there's constant requests for disclosure that need to be made as you dig and dig deeper into the ITO. Sharif?
2: Yeah, I, so I just got retained, just because I don't know if people, the listeners, well, I'm sure many of the listeners do know, but I mean, I just got retained on a case um, where it's like, it's very late. My client's already been convicted, not sentenced yet. Uh, but it's a, it's a project case where my client wasn't even, wasn't a target of the wiretap. And wasn't caught on any of the wiretaps. So, and I asked, I had a simple request please provide me with disclosure or at least an inventory of disclosure. And I got back a 1,498 page table with just lines of the name of every single file that had been disclosed. I guess over the last like four or five years, because you know the projects last forever. But I literally got fifty a fifteen hundred page like table of contents. A table of contents that's one thousand five hundred pages. So to just wrap your head around the table of contents would probably take a week. So how are we supposed to digest all the disclosure? And this is why I was, you know, shaking my head and had my face in my hand when you first asked about how do we challenge these wiretaps. The first is we, we have to start saying, we have to start pushing back against this method of prosecution that's just absolute madness, right? It's like, okay, well, we had a wiretap up on 75 people and we're prosecuting 50. And um, here's all the disclosure in relation to all of them and just we're being dumped on because the, the strategy is, um, as far as I can tell, drown defense counsel. They
0: know, they know if the client's private, they're eventually going to run out of resources. If it's legal aid, they know that they're not going to fund a fulsome challenge. And in fact, what they're often doing is, you know, appointing one or two people of a group to, you know, do the work for everybody. Um, You know, we ran into this issue where the way they separated the groups, the primary targets and secondary targets They challenged our standing to challenge the wiretaps as secondary targets. And basically, you know, we had to deal with that whole issue. So they're just going to litigate us out of the water in terms of, that's the way I'm seeing how this unfolds. Laura?
1: Well, I don't think you'll be surprised by this, Mark. I'm going to do a glass half full version. Sure. Where... (laughs) (laughs) Laura's
0: ever the optimist.
1: (laughs) So I can tell you that um, sometimes the crowns are quite reasonable. And I recently had a case where I was very overwhelmed with the state of disclosure. My client is not that involved. And, you know, I came in late. I get maybe 15 USBs, a ton of CDs. And I asked the crown, I said, "Can (laughs) can you just give me a separate USB with all the disclosure that's relevant to my client? Now, obviously, I cannot depend on that but it's a very good starting point, And the crown did that. She spent a few weeks and has provided me one USB that has the entire case. And so now a case that I was going to lose a lot of sleep over. I remember thinking I'm going to have to give up my vacation. I'm in a much more uh, tenable position to prepare. And so one of the lessons that I've learned over the years is... Like, why not ask the crown? I ask the crown for so many things. <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't work out, but oftentimes you get something that ends up saving you a ton of time. And I and I think in this case, benefits my client significantly.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good piece of advice is, you know, you if you ask, if you don't ask, then you're going to be criticized for not asking. So you might as well just ask. Sharif, if we had to, you know, impart some wisdom on you know, counsel who are not familiar with, you know, Garifoli. as you indicated, these 70 people get arrested, 50 people get charged. You could have a regular client who would never necessarily get wrapped up in this, get wrapped up. And all of a sudden you're stuck with a uh, Garrett on your desk and you're not familiar with that. What do you impart to those counsel who get these cases and, you know, is there any, words of wisdom that we can impart on
2: them. Yeah, come up with a plan early on and um, and get your resources together early on. Put like, assemble assemble a team. Um, I sound like uh, a member of, like, uh, Team America or whatever, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> assemble your team early on and get together and come up with a plan in terms of ensuring that you have the ITOs covered, that you have all the source documents covered, and that you, you know... What issues you're going to uh, go for, uh, because like also, every single one of these projects you could probably identify twenty issues to pursue. So just figure out what your plan, figure out who your team is, and get a plan early. Because by the time they get to the Superior Court of Justice, I mean the reality is they always have prelims, right? Or like almost always have prelims. And by eighteen months in, you're at the superior court, and usually no one's read the ITO in its entirety, right? Like, this is the this is the reality of it because they're like four thousand pages or five thousand pages. But if you can front load that work before the prelim, you stand a much better chance of having a plan for the prelim and um, and afterwards. So, yeah.
0: On that advice, if, if you're if you're a, a large group with legally aided clients, it might be useful to. Apply to Legal Aid early with your plan to see what can be offered in terms of hours. Um,
2: I'm, I'm I'm a skeptic, man. I I, I, like Legal Aid, is so not gonna, Legal Aid is not going Legal Aid is not going to pay you the hours that are required to competently defend your client. That are is they just like, Are
0: they ever going to do that in any case? No, but in per, particularly <laughs> in
2: the project cases, I think you you have to swallow the loss, bite the bullet, and that's why that's like what happened with me, right? Like I started working for Craig and doing these cases early on and I'd like blow the budget up like four, four times over. Um, but you, you, the, the young and junior lawyers are the ones who have the time and the energy to really dig deep. So get a team of like young, sanguine, optimistic lawyers like Laura.
1: (laughs) Well, that's interesting. I was going to say I had two points, which was the first Sharif and I did a case. It was very interesting. It was, um, project case, a number of interesting legal issues. And um, what Sharif was able to do was he had some law students uh, from the university, was it University of Osgood?
2: No, I, uh, one was Osgood, one was McGill.
1: Yeah. And they were very smart, very eager. And they went out and did a bunch of our field work. Um, and, you know, they, they went and took pictures of the residences and um, did some really excellent memos. And that was something that was incredibly helpful, but also isn't you know if if it's a private case or a legal aid case isn't tapping into your budget and also gives the students a really good opportunity because I know for example at the University of Ottawa you can get credit for working for lawyers so I'm not advocating for listeners I'm not advocating for students to be doing free work but there are programs where you can get credit and that's something that I find really useful and then I was going to say um but I think for the first couple and recognizing that I was obviously in a more privileged position with the firm that I was at, it is it is important to do the research up front and invest heavily. My first Gary Foley, I spent at least 100 hours just reviewing every article out there. Um, Adam Bonney, by the way, did a ton of CPDs over the last 10 years and has a bunch of articles that say search warrants one, two, three. like very basic because
0: Adam Bonnie is a great resource for all things section eight.
1: Yeah. And it's because it can be overwhelming at first, right? You're, you're given, you you know, your principal says, go write a Gare Foley and you say, what's a Gare (laughs) Foley.
0: So I'm not going to take credit for that Ottawa. You uh, go work for a lawyer for credit. But, um, when, when we were there myself, um, Leo Rusomano, who practices in Ottawa, who's going to be on the podcast, and Paulo Giancaterino, who also practices in Ottawa, who was on the podcast last season. Um, We were complaining that they didn't have enough criminal law-focused courses as well as criminal law-focused, I guess they called them, uh, I'm going to use the word co-op, but I forget what they're called, like practicum classes. Mm -hmm. And um, we applied to the assistant dean at the time, who assisted us with uh, said, you know, if you guys put a plan together and find lawyers that were willing to take you on, we can talk about credit. And that's pretty much how I got my criminal experience uh, while I was at Ottawa, you and Paulo as well and Leo as well. We all spent our times working for criminal lawyers. Who Um, did you work for? I worked for a lawyer called Susan Mulligan. She was a fierce defense lawyer in Ottawa. Uh, Paulo and I worked for her and Leo worked for Matt Weber, now Justice Weber. And it was good to get in with the Ottawa Bar at that time, um, but we, I got good experience. I got to go to court early, do set dates early, work on an appeal, just to kind of feel around what it was all about because it's, there's really not much for criminal law, criminally interested students or criminal law interested students.
1: Well, you were definitely successful because by the time we fast forward to insert X amount of years, we won't age yourself or my, myself. Um, when I was at University of Ottawa, there were a ton of those programs. Um, one of the internships I got to do for the month of January was to actually go to Laval and continue watching Michael argue this carefully in an 11B. We had a clerkship for the Ontario Court of Justice where I also worked for now Justice Weber and got credit for that. So I, I am Ottawa U's biggest fan. I think that in terms of a criminal law program, they have... Uh, so many opportunities to get a practical experience if you want it.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's very important because we uh, that's what you need for criminal law. Uh, if you really want to practice in criminal law, I think you need to get in court and see what it's all about early. Otherwise, you could get very discouraged very early on. You can also get discouraged by doing Garifoli applications. Apparently, <laughs> Sharif, this has this ever led you to think about leaving the practice of criminal law um just the state of affairs generally i'm not not necessarily just careful
2: the despondency of our existence as defense counsel yes <laughs> um yeah honestly to be totally honest absolutely i have like and it's not like it's a um uh it's just a one-time fleeting thought i think what like, guys, look at me. Do we all kind of think about it sometimes? No. Laura's like, absolutely not. Never. We'll never leave the practice. No, I um. I often get discouraged. I'm like, is this sustainable for 30, 40 years, especially if you want to do some legal aid work? It just feels like the government wants to destroy the defense bar. You know? <laughs> Seriously, that's what it, it feels it,
0: like. It, you know what? It's it's true. Yeah, I feel like it's never been harder To practice criminal law. I mean, people from all generations might say that, but feel free to agree or disagree. But to me, that's how it feels right now. In
2: in the last, you know, I've only been practicing for about nine years, but in the last two years, we have seen so many people leave the defense bar. So many like really excellent lawyers and lawyers. I'm like, holy crap, like that was like a defense lawyer's defense lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. And they go and they work for the crown. Um, So I've Definitely thought about it. I don't know if it'll ever happen because, like, I always, like, you know, I'm like a, a junkie. I always come back and I'm oh like, give me another trial, just one more trial. <laughs> but um, I do think that there is a really pressing uh, issue with how, uh, and I don't mean to be too self-centered, but, like, millennial lawyers and Gen Z lawyers are going to survive, um, especially if you practice in the GTA But, like, um, fingers crossed, and, you know, some people are going to be mad, but fingers crossed we have, like, uh, the housing uh, market uh, bursts, and and then people can, like, actually afford to, like, penetrate the real estate market and start their lives. But for my generation and younger, I feel like it is incredibly difficult to just foresee a normal, like, trajectory that uh, our parents' generation had by being defense counsel. It is... um, it is challenging and it is, uh, scary, but, uh, you know, I haven't quit yet. You know, I might take a break every now and then a few months off here and there. I'm trying, I'm being deliberate about trying to have a more balanced lifestyle so that my work is more, uh, uh, I can tolerate it more, but it's, no, it's not, uh, the practice of defense is not, it's not, it's not easy. It's not for, it's not for everyone. Laura.
1: So I haven't, um, but I would say that I do get frustrated and I do think that, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I have, uh, spent a lot of my last six months being very cognizant and deliberate about how am I going to make it through the next 30 to 40 years? I, I did spend the first five years only working and I am, happy I learned as much as I did but it's not sustainable um and so I've recently taken back up softball bowling going to the cottage I'm a lot more it it takes a lot to say no to to working all the time because it's overwhelming in the sense that your clients lives are a matter they remind you constantly Mm. (laughs) um you're cognizant of the fact that you know you're not you're not a top senior counsel yet so how can you make up for that lack of knowledge work harder and it seems that all of the answers to your questions are work harder so that's that's something that I struggle a lot with is, is the sustainability and yeah I find it very frustrating the amount that we spent on tuition the amount of debt we came up with um, I've personally resolved myself to the fact that I'm just not owning a house for a very long time unless I find a double income. <laughs> that was a joke. It's no. <laughs> <laughs> It's for all the listeners out there. For all the yeah. listeners. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but you know what? I, Being a little bit uh, more senior than both of you, it's, the other aspect of it outside of all that is just what we were talking about in terms of how difficult it is substantively right now cases are harder the investigations are th- more thorough um you know you have these large projects Garofoli's foley's murder cases videos um phone records uh, the police power to investigate is getting to be uh so much
2: more i don't even know what the word is we're entering the era of mass surveillance
0: right, right exactly and it's like you know, not saying that people should be able to get away with crime, but the state of the law is real evidence. There's a, the court wants to let real evidence in and real evidence is becoming more and more, you know, prevalent so many different ways. So it becomes a lot harder to advocate because we're fighting for the rights of our clients and whether or not the police cross these lines. But at the same time, they're saying to us, we got the evidence,
2: yeah, well, it's not hard to get the evidence when you have, like, mind-reading technology. Like, li- literally, the new technology that they have to, like, hack phones and stuff collects evidence that is probably, like, more invasive and can give the police more information about your thoughts than you yourself know. Like, you know, when you now you, like, type, type something into, like, your email and, like, Google or whatever like literally reads your thoughts and like tells you how to complete your email. Like that, that's based on technology on algorithms that detect patterns that with the newest technology they're able to draw those same inferences and eventually we're going to start seeing like predictive artificial technology, uh, artificial intelligence uh, being used if it hasn't already been used so it is, it's super scary to think about how and that's why like the wiretap cases and how you mount the challenge to a wiretap case, like had my face in my hand, because it's it's not only is it daunting, but it is super important, just from a civil liberties perspective. It's not just for our clients, but do we want to live in the kind of society where um, police can know everything about everyone all at once? like ugh.
0: so two things I just want to follow up. The first is, what you just said, I look back to when I articled in my first year as a lawyer and the first wiretap that I did, and I feel like if I handed you those i t o s either of you, you would almost guarantee me an exclusion that's how bad they were compared to what we see today and it's frustrating for me to look back and say, "Oh, I wish I knew then what I know now, obviously the reason why we know it now is because of the, the work that's been done by our colleagues throughout the last, you know, 15 years. But on top of that, when, and I'll ask both of you this, do you think, or when do you think the court is actually going to catch up in terms of understanding these issues, these artificial intelligence issues, algorithm issues? Because, it almost seems that they are dismissing these applications with just a cursory understanding or very basic understanding of what's really going on. Meanwhile, the police are using technology and experts to really help them find out this information. Either you have any predictions on this or is this a
1: lost thought? I have an off the cuff answer, which we'll decide later if we bleep it out. Um, I think that it is going to come with, with age. Um, I'm thinking about cases where you're trying to explain to the judge why it's so problematic that the police are creating these undercover accounts to access Instagram. For someone of an older generation who does not use Instagram, they don't understand, and that's totally fair, but they don't understand that that's the main means of communication for younger people. And, and so in order to get that section eight privacy, the reasonable expectation of privacy, the judge has to understand why, why that device and and that manner of communication is creepy. (laughs) Thank you. Um, and and yeah, so I I mean, Instagram is a particular issue that I, I, I care about, especially when you start to realize that a lot of people actually use it for their phone calls. Now it's how they communicate instead of using text messages. I've learned that apparently texting for people under a certain age is, is just uncool. You just, you just don't even do it apparently. Um, so that that's where I'll use my uh, optimism and say that I think it's going to get better with uh, time, but there's also things that I think you can do. You can try to bring in expert evidence and get rejected, like we did in our case, Marco, but...
0: <laughs> well, it's funny, because... So if I if we follow the trajectory of, like... I argued in 2009 a case called Polius, which was a case about searching a cellular phone upon arrest. So it was a like pre fearon and then Fearon turned out to be the, the case that got appealed. Our case never got appealed. It was just a pretrial application in front of Justice Trafford. That was 2009. When did... America come down from the Supreme court of Canada where justice McLaughlin then says, you know, cell phones are part of our everyday life.
2: 2016. Right. So
0: on that trajectory, we're in a seven year, eight year, you know, trajectory, but cell phone usage became part of the judge's everyday life. Right. You know, when I was arguing that application, like we literally had to walk the judge through how, the cell phone functioned, how many clicks of the phone the officer had to do to get the information he got through. And we linked it to going into a house, into a filing cabinet that was locked and opening it drawer by drawer so that the judge can get that understanding. But then, you know, fast forward eight years, cell phones become part of the judge's everyday lives. They have an understanding of how personal and private it is. So now all of a sudden they pronounce law on those privacy interests because they are part of it. So do we need judges who are using Instagram in order for us to get there? Sharif, what do you think on this?
2: I I think the law, um, is going to be 15, at least 15 to 20 years behind, um, the technology issues, uh, absent some kind of scandalous, um, law enforcement behavior that um, that causes reverberations in the in the public domain. So if we think about it, for example, um, let's look at like the cameras, the secret cameras, the covert cameras. I mean, our law is only now, like really in like 2020, 2021, 2022, starting to uh, put limits on where police can install secret cameras. And like Wong from the Supreme Court came out in what 1990, right? Thirty years later, we're starting to our law is starting to delineate with precision what the contours of of, uh, covert cameras are. Um, when it comes to the more significant technology, first of all, like um, cell site simulators, stingrays, that kind of stuff. I mean, remember, law enforcement will deny having the technology. Lie, literally lie about it for years. And then like, in like one Toronto Star article years later, it's like, oh, but police actually had it for years, right? So first there'll be a few years of police having the technology, lying about using it, like they did about Cle- Clearview, the facial recognition right. software. After that, there's going to be the prosecutions that they're used in. Uh, there's going to be those challenges, and then there's going to be uh, several years of jurisprudential battles where we're litigating it. So I think we have it's going to be, you know, and that's just a rough estimate, fifteen to twenty years after the techno- the inception of the technology is when we're going to start seeing the litigation, unless there's some kind of like scandal that we see with the unlawful use of this technology. We started seeing it a little bit. I don't know if you guys have heard of the NSO Group Pegasus. It's a technology, um, cell phone hacking technology that was developed by an Israeli company um, that has been used by governments to spy on journalists and lawyers and right. wh- and whatever, and so we're starting to see um, some scandals uh, around that. How long it'll take for that to, to 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 start getting courts to care about you know your average gangster from wherever um i don't know but i think i mean the reality is is we're just going to be we're going to be dealing with uh what i think is unlawful mass surveillance probably for the next uh decade before something starts happening
0: you mentioned the clear clear view um the privacy commissioner's provided a pretty good ruling on that i'm not sure what application is going to have in criminal court in terms of, you know, people's reasonable expectation of privacy. But if anybody reads it, you'll see that, you know, in a nutshell, and I'm just summarizing here, they basically say that, you know, stuff that you put on Instagram or put on your professional website is not necessarily meant for public consumption in the sense that police can't use it to investigate you for gathering your facial recognition data to, you know, commit crime or to police crimes. And, but it's a privacy commissioner ruling. I'm not really sure... Yeah,
2: I, I mean, when when are like the, for me the real question is when is the court going to confront the question of mass surveillance? Because the question of mass surveillance has been an issue that lawyers have been kind of like hinting about in terms of just the even just the the plain old um, part six wiretaps right. Wire taps, right? The, uh, that we will wiretap a certain number of people's phones and then the wiretap applications got bigger and bigger and bigger right. and then we'd start wiretapping more and more and more people's phones uh, and dozens and dozens of people and then everyone that they talk to. At what point are we not uh, just engaged in mass surveillance, even when we're just using the most primitive form of technology when it comes to intercepting private communications? we have the courts have not yet addressed that issue we tried to kind of raise it in that case that uh dealt with um you know the condo cameras right Brewster and you where we're like okay but if you install a camera in the hallway of a building and you have it installed for like three or four months you're literally capturing the movements of thousands of people it also um it was also uh, kind of a hot topic uh, before G20, when the Toronto police were installing um, what they call public view cameras, right? Right. And, you know, the law enforcement is very uh, strategic, and they know how to uh, sort of make those issues go away from the public realm, and then... Um, without sort of having any decision on it by courts and then sort of creep up the use of that technology um, in subsequent years. Uh, And we know that they are engaging, that, that they are pushing the envelope consistently. So when is it that the courts are going to start confronting mass surveillance? I don't know. I hope soon. I hope with a younger and more diverse bench, we start seeing more of a, of an of, um, interventionist and brave judiciary when it comes to these questions of mass surveillance because really that is, I think, the frontier of Section 8, right? Like, we're, everything else in Section 8 we figured out. We figured out the DNA right. warrants. We figured out the search of a home. You know, we can argue here and there about a CI issue de both blah, 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 whatever. But in terms of a society with how far our technology has come, we need to start, the law needs to start catching up. It's way behind. We're way behind. The law is way behind.
0: Laura?
1: I agree. Uh, I agree. It's um, it's definitely a problem, and you see the problem in these project cases when you read the 60-page part six warrant slash assistance order slash uh, it's 60 pages of how many phones they get to intercept, the room probes, the vehicle probes, the various techniques that they're using to get a cell phone number. Um, I I find it incredibly problematic, the state of mass surveillance we have. Um, The problem is when you get down to these cases, uh, to make that kind of argument, you're likely facing either a standing issue or you're going to bring an abusive process and you're going to need a very brave judge to say enough's enough that this is just not acceptable um and i don't i don't think we're at that stage yet i w- wish we were but it does not uh y- you start to raise these arguments and you start to make these kind of statements and you get pushback right away
0: it just seems like
1: council are you saying this is a the highest day of proceedings remedy etc no no
0: well if we go back imagine at the early, it's almost like, well, you're using all this technology. You're putting stuff on Instagram. You're using cell phones. You're using Uber. You're using these apps. So you've agreed to use all these things to make your life more convenient. So it becomes the state can investigate those aspects. That's,
1: that's, but I think at what point are we going to understand that that's actually, it's not a choice anymore. So I have a friend who she may listen to this podcast and she'll know that I'm talking about her. I have a friend who has done everything in her power to stay away from adopting to these technologies. But we went to the Jays game the other day and she was so frustrated because we could not get her a ticket by walking up to the ticket booth. The only way we could get her ticket was downloading the app. She had to put her credit card. And I said, just let me get the app. Let me get the ticket (laughs) because truly for her to go to a Jays game, she was required to download an app put in her credit card number. And we know from the case we were just working on, what's the standard if the police wanted to get her subscriber information? Reasonable suspicion. Right. So uh, the, the cases, you're right, they often take that approach, which is y- you've agreed to these services, but but have you? I mean, does anyone in tr- Toronto really take cabs and pay cash? No, you take Ubers because, it. to be honest, as a female, they are much safer than cabs ever will be. You have their uh, the cab driver information, their license plate. Um, it's it's a much safer way to travel than it is to take cabs. Um, so when I choose to t- take Uber, am I giving up my privacy? No. Anyway, yeah. do we really have rant. agency?
2: <laughs> do we really have agency in terms of the technology that we're quote unquote choosing to use when? You can't send your kid to school with a pad of paper and a a pencil, right? They make you send them with like iPads and stuff now. It's crazy. So like, oh, you you, oh, you you chose to use this technology. It's like, I didn't choose anything. This is the world we live in. And so with the proliferation of technology in our capitalistic society, the courts have to start acknowledging that there isn't that much choice. You know, and like you couldn't even get back into the country without the ArriveCan app or something, right? No, like,
1: no, you could not. I almost got stuck. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and the ArriveCan app is another great way of, for the government to spy on us. If like, you
1: want a perfect example of how dependent we are in technology, think about our recent outages, where totally. all of a sudden we we can't do anything. To- it, it, how totally. much of a choice is it really,
0: Laura? What lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career, or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had an opportunity to observe before they retired?
1: So I had an, an- different answer prepared, and I'm gonna change it. <laughs>
0: There's no look. Everybody mentions this questionnaire. They harp on me for this. Que- the questionnaire <laughs> is not a script. It's not a bible. It all it is is just to. Put thoughts in your head so that when you come to the podcast, there's things, you know what I'm going to ask you. There's no surprises. I want people to be able to speak freely. So feel free to answer whatever you want to that question, Laura.
1: So uh, I felt incredibly privileged uh, to watch. It was in my first two months of working at Frank's office to watch uh, Samara Sector litigate a motion. Um, I was... Awestruck in watching her preparation, uh, how many drafts she went through, um, and by the time she got in court, she had uh, a level of confidence but also charm. And uh, it, there was no doubt at the end of the hearing that, <laughs> in my view, that it, she was going to win, and she did. It was a very successful application that uh, gave the client back his life. Um, but I I remember uh, being very grateful for that experience because I, I was a big part of the of watching how she prepared, and uh, that's something that I am I, I think is very important as a young lawyer to be involved in the preparation process when you're watching senior counsel litigate, and that was something that I appreciated.
0: That's great, uh, Sharif same question
2: um i wish i could have seen eddie litigate you know i entered the defense bar um do you guys remember there was a uh, well laura might not remember Freep, that was my original answer yeah I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah but i had him in the answer too I, I said i wish i could have seen eddie in his heyday but do you guys remember or do you Marco, remember there was the cla the gala the like black tie event the only time they held it
0: meet the uh, Meet the Greenspans? Was there... Is that <laughs> it? No, I remember there was one where I went to... Yeah, I, I, I went to um, several black tie events, not necessarily by the CLA, but there was one specifically was called Dinner with the Greenspans, and I went to that, but That's go funny. ahead. That's it's funny. The, yeah.
2: No, it was a gala. It was like a it was a gala for like the whole CLA, and do you remember, it was right around the time the Gomeshi allegation started coming oh, yeah, out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, Marie yes. made a joke. Yes. and But Eddie Eddie, Eddie was still with us. That's right. And he made a speech. And um, I, I was a bit captivated, but um, I wish I could have seen um, Eddie in his heyday. And I have a friend who articled uh, for Eddie who has hilarious stories that like I will not be able to repeat. Um, but I wish I could have seen him. And I wish I could have seen uh, G. Arthur Martin um, just you know the legends uh, but I'm obviously very blessed uh, to have uh, seen Marie to have seen Scott to have seen Frank Adderio. Uh and frankly there's a ton of legends that are alive right now that are part of the defense bar that I am like constantly just very like sometimes i'm like am i part of this club like am i you know what i mean like am i in a jpt with liam o'connor <laughs> you know exactly. so, so um you know i i have a tremendous amount of respect for a ton of our colleagues and so i'm 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 still excited to see a lot of them litigate cases in 2022 so uh there's an endless list
0: yeah i think you know we all i had the f- benefit of um Actually seeing uh, Eddie Greenspan work through the trial called Petritus, which was like a conspiracy to commit murder by this this media mogul, I think, who hired uh, or had like a dominatrix who they worked a plan to hire her her ex-biker husband to murder his wife or something to that effect, but it was all part of like his sexual fantasies. Sounds
2: titillating. It was
0: amazing. It was like a, <laughs> and I was doing a murder trial at that time at 361 university that, that we had a, a sick juror. So we had to, have to show up every day and wait for this juror to come back. And the judge wouldn't excuse the juror and proceed. Cause there was a concern that we were going to mistry the case. So I had this benefit of just, spending my day watching that case. (laughs) And it was good because Michael Lacey was working on it with, uh, with Eddie Greenspan and it was near the end or getting closer to the end of his uh, career. But the presence that stage presence in front of a jury was still there. And um, it was really something, you know, you feel the benefit of seeing, and then you can also see that impact on the, members of our bar, like we talked about Michael Lacey right now, his influence, like Eddie's influence on Michael Lacey and Alan Gold's influence on Michael Lacey's advocacy. You can see it if you see them work. And so it's those traditions that, you know, and the same with Liam, you mentioned working, I'm sure with Pinkovsky for all those years that, that influence falls upon him, even though his style's different. It's that something in your lineage and you all will have it from your lineage and, that's how we carry the tradition of the bar going forward. Totally. Sharif, Laura, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the law garage and share your experience with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe that there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. Before we leave, is there anything either of you would like to plug? Uh, Laura?
1: Um, I don't think so. I just wanted to say thank you so much uh, for having us here today. It was an absolute privilege to uh, be on this podcast with uh, all the other excellent speakers that have been on this in the past. I do have Twitter, you're welcome to follow me. And if any uh, young lawyers or students ever have any questions, I always get a lot of joy from answering those.
2: Thank you so much, Marco, for um, having us. Uh, It's a privilege to be here. Um, my current favorite podcast that I'll plug is called for the defense. That's with an S it's an American podcast by a lawyer named David Oscar Marcus. Actually, Laura told me about this podcast. (laughs) So uh, I don't know why you didn't plug it, Laura, but it's a, it's a great podcast.
1: I didn't Uh, actually understand the meaning of the word plug. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Yeah. You can plug yourself or or anything
2: else. And then if anyone wants to uh, reach out for like recommendations about, um, uh, either advocacy or storytelling, or lawyer um, uh, podcasts, or books, or whatever. Like, just send me an email. My information is publicly available: shrief@photolaw. dot com. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. At The Law Garage, our production crew includes Executive Producer Jason Cooper and Associate Producers Christina Stau, Remy Sandoval, and Matthew Takamatsu. The La Garage is a J. Mike podcast production.